Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, we're working on a series. We're working through the book of Luke, and we do one chapter a week, take one piece out of the chapter, and then leave everything else, and then we go to the next chapter and take one story or parable out of it, and then we move on, and technically... Uh, this weekend we should be in Luke chapter 14, but because it's Palm Sunday, uh, I wanted to preach on the cross and the crucifixion. It's just such, again, it's such an important time of year, and this is the reason uh, why we have church, and this is the reason, this is our, the, the core of our salvation, and so I'm going to do Luke chapter 23 today. So we're just going to go out of order, and then after Easter, we'll come back to Luke 14 and keep going through in a systematic way. But I want to do Luke chapter 23 today, and I'm just going to read you a big chunk. You know, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he says, do not neglect the public reading of the scriptures. And one of the things I'm really committed to, and, and we do that every week here at Southland, um, pretty much before I preach is I'll read you a chunk of scripture and today I'm just going to read you a big chunk and I hope that this story never gets old for us because really this is the hope all the problems that you come into this service with and we all come in here with problems we all come in here with disappointments and hurts and things that we're going through and things that we wish were different do you know that all of that in light of the cross this is where the hope is your marriage problems your finance problems your health problems your whatever, emotional problems, all under the cross and under the blood of Jesus. This is where the hope is, the hope for eternal life, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of a different future. It's all here. And so I'm going to read you 25 verses here out of Luke chapter 23, and uh, I hope that you'll open up your heart and let the Holy Spirit speak to you already, even just as I'm reading this. But then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. I always love Jesus' cryptic answers, right? He never answers the way we think he would. You have said so. Fine, okay? And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he wants to get rid of the problem, right? He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Now, do you know how hard that is? I mean, anybody here, and pretty much all of us who've been alive for some amount of time, at some point in your life, you've been falsely accused of something, you've been slandered, you've had someone lie about you. Isn't it the hardest thing not to defend yourself? And they stand there just throwing accusations at him, and he just, he just stands there. It's amazing. His character is just incredible. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. What a nice guy, hey? He's done nothing, so I'll punish and release him. 
But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, right? Instead of Jesus, let's, let's have a terrible criminal released, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Bow your heads with me in, and let's just pray. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would give us hope. You are real. These events actually happened. And because of that, our future is transformed. And because of the hope of our future, Lord, our present should actually be transformed as well. I pray for each one of us here today, Lord Jesus said, you would release in us joy, a spirit-empowered joy as we look afresh at what you have done for us. In your precious, wonderful, powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, there's many levels to this story. You know, all the stories in the gospel, there's many different levels to them. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, the main stories about Jesus, there's lots of levels, different levels, different layers. You can peel back and you can look at this thing at deeper and deeper levels, whether it be, you know, the Christmas story is like that, and the resurrection and the crucifixion in particular. There's many levels to the story, okay? And, and you say, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, there's the basic story. All you need to know, it's not, when I say levels, I'm not trying to compl complicate things. I'm not trying to say you need a PhD, you need a Bible college degree in order to, to understand the story of the crucifixion. Um, if you just know the basic story, you know, Jesus was betrayed and he died and he rose again, you know enough to be saved. You know enough to be a Christian and walk with Jesus and have your eternity with him uh, forever. You know enough. But there's so much more to the story than just that. You don't have to be a genius to figure it all out. You just need the basics. But there's so many other layers that if we open them up, they actually make the basic story come more alive. It's kind of like a piece of music. Now, I feel, you know, really unqualified to talk at all about music. I know nothing about music. And, uh, but my kids take piano lessons. And uh, I don't know. And, and why do we, by the way, why do we do that to our kids, right? None of us plays piano, but we make all of our kids take piano lessons. But anyway, it's something we do, right? But uh, one of the things... And my parents made me take piano, and my mom, since she's here finally again today, I can say this from the pulpit, and she always said I would, I would uh, regret not wanting to do my piano lessons, and really, actually, I don't regret it. But anyway, um, <laughs> although I, I do wish I could play now, I wish, I, I, but whatever. So it was painful. Where was I? Oh, so anyway, the melody. In every piece of music, in every piece of music, there's a melody. Now, the melody, if you know the melody you know the song. Like, if you can hum the melody, you know the song. And the melody is usually very simple. It's usually just one note at a time. You can play it with one hand. That's the melody, and, and it's very simple. And if you know the melody, you, you know it. You know the tune, you know the song. But isn't it true that there are so many other things to a piece of music, and if you add in those other chords and those harmonies, it doesn't take away from the melody. It enhances the melody. Isn't that true? It helps you experience and see and notice things in the melody that you didn't notice before. And the same is true for these stories about Jesus, particularly the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
There are many layers, things that are happening that if you just, if you just read through the story, yes, it's enough to be saved. He, he, he was betrayed, he died, he rose again. That's enough. If you know that, that's enough. But if we go beneath the surface, there's many other things going on. And when we look at those things, they don't take away from the basic story. They enhance it, and they help us understand and see things in a way that we otherwise couldn't see. And most of those notes, and you say, well, where do we find these other notes and these other layers? Most of these other notes, these other harmonies and chords that go along with the story are rooted in the Old Testament because the crucifixion story didn't just happen on its own in the middle of nowhere in a vacuum. It's not like, boom, there was nothing, nothing, nothing. Suddenly, the Son of God is here on earth. He dies and he rises again. Wow, that was a shock. You know, 1,500 years before, God gave Moses the law, and there was all kinds of things going on in the Old Testament, all of it pointing and preparing the way for Jesus. And if we go back into the Old Testament, if we take the story of Jesus, which is, was in its context fully rooted in the Old Testament, if we go back to the Old Testament, and we often do this around Easter, we find many parallels and notes in there that help bring things out of the story that impact our lives in a new way, in a fresh way. And so we've talked lots over the years about many of the parallels, for example, between the Passover lamb in, the, in, in, in Exodus, right? In Egypt, God brings, miraculously brings the Israelites out of Egypt, and they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the wood on the doorpost. And we've talked lots about the different parallels between what they did with those Passover lambs and, and some of the things that happened to Jesus at the cross. Amazing things that, that just are not coincidence, amazing things. Well... I want to look at some more parallels this morning. There's three I want to look at at the beginning and then one at the end. But I want to look at some new parallels in this message, and we could go on and on. There's many others I'm not touching on, but I want to look at some new things. Out of Exodus 12, verses 3 to, verses three to 6, and I want to, I, want to just help, I want to help us all to appreciate Jesus in a new way today. And so if we go back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 to 6, and then we'll jump back to the crucifixion story after, and we'll look at some of these parallels, but... Uh, starting in verse 3, this is God giving to Moses the instructions for the first Passover. And they would, they would celebrate Passover every year after this, but there were some special instructions that just applied to the very first one in Egypt before they left. And so he's giving him instructions for the first Passover. They're in Egypt, and this is what they're supposed to do before they walk out of Egypt. So tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, and in the Jewish calendar it was the month of Nisan, just like the car maker, you can remember it that way, on the tenth day of this month, which was the month of Nisan, and that'll be important a little bit later, but anyway, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Nisan, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So here's what happened. On the fifteenth of the month, exactly in the middle of the month, that was the day they walked out of Egypt, okay? And the, the angel of death passed over them. On the, in the 14th in the evening, they sacrificed the lambs, put the blood on the doorpost. The angel passed over them that night and didn't kill the firstborn. And on the 15th, they left. So the 15th of Nisan is the day uh, of the Jew, in the Jewish calendar where even to this day that they celebrate uh, Passover, okay? But now we see three specific instructions in this passage that I want you to notice. And the first thing is the date for, for bringing the lamb into the home. And there's a date, he says, on the 10th day, okay? Not on the 8th, not on the 7th, not on the 9th, not on the 11th or the 12th. Not late, not early. On the 10th day of the month, okay? So you're going to sacrifice the lamb on the 14th. On the 15th, you're going to leave Egypt. But on the 10th day of the month, 
you're going to bring, a, you're going to separate out a lamb, and you're going to bring him into your home, okay? Now, why would you do this? Now, first of all, I, I'm not an animal, and you guys know this, okay? So I have nothing against those of you who are animal lovers. My, my brother is an animal lover, and uh, he also has a lot of issues. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, and I know some of you like to sleep with your dogs and your cats and all that sort of stuff, but I don't think any of you would like to sleep with a sheep, okay? But in this passage, they were to take this sheep, separate out, the, each family was going to separate out a sheep, okay, from the herd, and they were going to bring them in. Now, these people weren't living in big homes. They weren't living in mansions. They weren't living in bi-levels and bungalows. They were living in little hovels. I mean, these were, these were slaves. But God said, I want you, on the, on the 10th of the month, I want you to, to separate out a lamb, and I want you to bring them into your home. Now, why on earth would God give them this command, okay? And the answer is what we're going to, to look at next there. In verse 5, he's, it's very important something here. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Okay, that's really important. I've got to underline there. Your lamb shall be without blemish. So this is really important. God did not want them just going out into the, to the flocks and just picking any old lamb. Okay? It wasn't just go out and pick the first lamb you see or go pick some sickly one or some old one that you're, you're not going to use anyway or that's not going to be able to make the journey. It's not go out and pick whatever lamb you see. It's your, each, each family goes out into the flock and they have to find a lamb without blemish. And this is so important that I don't want you just going out on the, on the 14th in the morning. I don't want you just going out on the 14th in the afternoon and quickly finding a lamb. This is so important. I want you to go out four days before the sacrifice. I want you to go out on the 10th. And I want you to pick out a lamb. And then there's four days. You're going to be living up close and personal with a sheep. And you're going to get to look it over. You're going to get to observe it. After four days of living with the sheep, you will know if there's something wrong with it, okay? You will know if there's a blemish. That's how important it is to God. You're going to bring that sheep in. You're going to separate out the sheep from the lamb and there's, or from the, from the herd. And you are going to have four days to kind of examine and observe to make sure that this lamb is without blemish, okay? So I just want to recap three things. I'm going to go back to the crucifixion story, and we're going to look at some very interesting parallels in the, in the crucifixion story. But just to recap this passage, okay? There's, and again, there's many other things we can look at. These were not the only rules for the Passover. I'm just looking at one passage. Uh, there's so many other things we can look at. But uh, three things we find in this passage. First of all, the, the specific date you are to go and, and separate out this lamb on the 10th. Okay, on the 10th. Uh, there's a four-day period of examination, observation before the sacrifice with them leaving Egypt on the 15th. And then the third thing, and, the, and really the most important thing, is this lamb must be without blemish, okay? This lamb must be without blemish. Now, again, the Israelites don't know in the moment. God's giving them these instructions. By, and by the way, isn't this so true for life? Sometimes, you know, you feel God leading you to do something, and it just doesn't make any sense. God's giving them all these rules, and they must be thinking, why on earth do I have to bring this lamb into my house on the 10th? Why can't I just go on the 14th and find one? Why is it so important that this lamb not have blemish? All of these things they can't see, but they don't know that God in his sovereignty is looking ahead 1,500 years. He knows exactly what's going to happen with Jesus, and he is setting all of this up to point towards Jesus because the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, and the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Right down to the smallest details. And so I want to show you that now. If we go to the story of the crucifixion, we're going to find some interesting coincidences. For example, coinc coincidence in quotation marks, number one, I don't really believe in coincidences, especially with when it comes to Jesus, but if we go back to the uh, Gospel of John, 
what date did Jesus enter Jerusalem just before his crucifixion? Well, let's find out. There's clues. If you go to John chapter 12, John says this in verse 1. Six days before the Passover. So Passover, remember, is the 15th of Nisan. Okay? Passover is the 15th of Nisan. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. So six days before the 15th is the 9th. On the 9th of the month, Jesus comes to Bethany, which is a small town just outside of Jerusalem. Okay? So, okay, very interesting. Where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, if we skip ahead 11 verses in that same chapter... We're going to find some more interesting information. Verse 12, the next day, so on the ninth of the month, he comes to Bethany, a small town outside of Jerusalem. The next day, okay, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So on the 9th of Nisan, he comes to Bethany, a small town outside of Jerusalem. The next day, which is the 10th of the month, the 10th of Nisan, he comes into Jerusalem. And that's when this famous story happens, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey and they're waving palm branches and all sorts of stuff. That happens on the 10th of Nisan, right before his crucifixion. Okay? So, interesting coincidence. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, that is just a coincidence. Okay? And again, I don't believe in coincidences with things like God. But I want to show you something else. There's a whole bunch of things now that begin to be really clear when you see this. Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes into, um, into Jerusalem right near the end of the chapter. And Luke 23 is where the crucifixion story. It's interesting in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and actually John too, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular. In the chapters between when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and where Jesus is crucified, there is a common theme that happens over and over and over and over again. Something happens to Jesus over and over and over again between when he comes into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan and when he's crucified, okay? And I'm going to show you a bunch of examples, a whole bunch. We're just going to look at a whole bunch of scripture, right? And uh, you're going to see this, right? So Luke chapter 23. Let's go back to Luke 23 where we started this message. Then the whole company of them, that was the Jewish religious leaders, arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So just pause there and then we're going to keep going. Uh, what's happening here? They're accusing him. They're questioning him. What's happening? They are examining him. And just in case you think I'm reading too much into this, you're going to find that exact word. I'm going to show it to you over and over. You're going to find that exact word just a few verses later in this chapter. Look at this, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, and I'll get to the verdict in just a few minutes. Okay? But I'm going to show you a whole bunch of examples now. Now remember, back Exodus chapter 12, what did they have to do? On the 10th of Nisan, you go out, you separate out a sheep out of the, out of the herd, out of the flock, you bring him into the home and there's this four-day period where you are observing, examining to make sure the most important part is this has to be a lamb without blemish. So you have to examine him for this period to make sure. Now we see Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And then what you're going to see, and I'll show you a whole bunch of examples now, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, over and over and over again, in between where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and where he's crucified, the common theme that happens over and over again is they're testing, accusing, asking, examining. Okay? So let me show you some more examples. So Pilate says, I, I was examining him. Um, but who else examined him? Well, he sent him to Herod, and Herod examined him too, right? Verse 7, 
And when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Pilate examined him, Herod examined him. Now before either of those guys examined him, right after the betrayal, who examined him first? The high priest and the religious leaders. Right? John, John chapter 18, verse 19. This is just before he goes to, the high, to uh, Herod. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. He was examining his leadership. He was examining his teaching. Everything is getting examined here. His character, his claims, his teaching, his leadership, right? And it says that the, uh, in Matthew, it says that the chief priests and the whole council were desperately seeking to find any small blemish in him. Look at this. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. They even got beyond. They, they were looking so much for the true stuff and couldn't find it. They were even looking for false stuff. Any minor little blemish. Again, remember, the Passover lamb comes into the family home. You've got to observe. You've got to make sure this lamb is without blemish. God is making sure that before he sacrifices his son on a cross everybody's going to have their best shot to find a, a, even the tiniest blemish. And so he subjects him to rigorous examination, accusation, observation, the Lamb of God, starting on the 10th of Nisan, right? Even some of the most famous trick questions that we know about in the Gospels were asked in this time period. Did you know that? You know the famous trick question where they try to trap him about you know, should we give taxes to Caesar or to God? And they're trying to trap him. And if he says one, they'll nail him on. If he says Caesar, then they're going to nail him. Oh, you don't really follow God. And if he says God, they're going to say, hey, you're rebelling against Caesar. That one all happened in this time period. Luke chapter 20, right? I won't read you the whole thing. But Luke chapter 20, uh, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And they're trying to trap him. They're examining to find anything wrong with him. And of course, Jesus in that brilliant, you know, one answer. He's not backpedaling. He's not defensive. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God. Just blows him up. Right now after that, they don't want to ask him questions anymore. At least the Pharisees. So then the Sadducees start the very next story. You know what it is. Last example I'll show you here. Very next story, Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The Sadducees, the scribes, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Oh, I'm on the wrong verse here. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, and then they asked him a trick question about the resurrection and marriage. They're testing him. What, about, what does he know about eternal life? What does he know about the resurrection? What does he believe about this? And it says at the end of that one, it says they didn't, nobody wanted to ask him questions anymore. But again, do you see the pattern between the 10th of Nisan and... And the resurrection, you've got Pilate and Herod and the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everybody is examining Jesus. They're taking their best shot. And like I said before, God the Father was making sure that before he sacrifices the, the lamb on the cross, he wants everybody to be sure that this is a lamb without blemish. And what's so exciting is they all took their best shot and they couldn't find a single thing. Do you know how hard that would be? I mean, if, if any of us was subjected to four days, we wouldn't last four hours, okay? But if, anybody, if any of us was brought, put on a hot seat like Jesus was, like it wouldn't take any time to find anything wrong on any of you, unless you're from out of town <laughs> and by yourself. 
Because all you got to do to find any kind of dirt on anyone, okay, first talk to their spouse. Boom, busted. <laughs> right? Talk to your kid. Talk to a parent. Talk to anyone that knows, okay? And you will find things that have been said and things that have been done, and you will find all kinds of things from their past. You will find blemishes, and it won't take long. These people knew Jesus' family, they knew his disciples, they knew his friends. He had grown up, it's a small country, it's a small place, and they had known him for, for years. And yet they went at him wanting to find something, and they could not find a single thing. Look at the verdict over and over again in these passages. Look at where, what the verdict comes back. If we go back to, again, Luke 23, where we started this, Pilate called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. And then it says against him, neither did Herod. I mean, Jesus was so pure of character and pure in terms of his tongue that the religious leaders could not even make lies stick. Now that's amazing. Like if we go back to Matthew chapter 26, and I read you verse 59, but I will read you both 59 and 60 now. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So they just, they just gave up on the truth. We've been looking and looking and looking. We haven't found anything on this guy, so we're going to try and make lies, but... His character was so holy, his words so wise and discerning and good, that they were lining up the false witnesses, and none of the lies could stick, none of them could match up, and they all knew it. It all looked ridiculous. It couldn't stick to him. That's how without blemish he was. Amen. In his teaching, the Pharisees said this after he got them on the whole Caesar thing, and when they were not, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. I just marvel at the fact that they could not catch him in anything he said. How many of you know it's pretty hard to never say anything that's a mistake or a sin with your tongue? Isn't that true? Like, every single one of us here, again, if you are old enough to talk, you have said things you regret in this life. Isn't that true? We've all said, every single person here, has said things that we regret. If, and I know that to be true because if Jesus showed up here on stage and said, I'm gonna show the video of everything you've ever said to any one of us and put it up there, if he said that to me, I would run out the back door and I would never come back in this church. <laughs> I mean, every piece of gossip, every lie, everything you said behind someone's back, every bad word, every angry thing, every stupid thing you ever said during a fight, if they put it all up on there, horrible, 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 terrible. But they could not catch him in a single thing he said, even when they were trying to trick him. I mean, James 3 verse 8 tells us how hard this is, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Isn't that the truth? And you know, Jesus, I remember a number of years ago actually praying once after saying yet another thing I regretted, saying to the Lord, I'm so tired of apologizing to people for what I said. I'm so tired of feeling guilty for what I've said, whether it be exaggeration or saying something in the wrong spirit or, or whatever. Uh, I'm just so tired of telling people I'm sorry. And I said, I, I want, please help my tongue so I never have to apologize again. Now, he said he would answer that at the resurrection. Uh, in the meantime, he helps and we grow, right? As you grow 
and you're walking with the Spirit less and less and less. Hopefully, we should all be getting less and less and less, but isn't it true that the tongue is a restless evil? And even though, as much as we walk with Jesus, still we mess up from time to time. There's no question. But Jesus, they could not catch him in a single thing he said. How must that even feel to be holy like that? How must that even feel? And you want to know why this is good news? There is, there is many, many reasons why this is such good news. But I just, want to, I just want to focus on one. I just have time for one. Why is this good news that Jesus could be subjected to such rigorous examination for four days before he died and they could find nothing, that he was a lamb without blemish. And I'll tell you one reason that's really good news, and it's this. It means that when he cleanses you of your sins, you're actually clean. The fact that he was a lamb without blemish means that when he cleanses you and I of our sins, it means we're actually clean. If he had had a blemish, if he had struggled with lust, how could he wash clean anybody's sin of lust? If he had sinned with his mouth, and we all sin with our mouths, if he had sinned with his mouth, how could he wash clean the sins and the regrets we have for the things we've said? I mean, if you take dirty toilet water and wipe the bathroom sink with it, is it clean? Some of you are giving me a blank stare. I don't want to use your bathroom. Some of you are going, what? If you use dirty water to clean something, you haven't cleaned it. You might smear the dirt around a bit more, but you haven't cleaned it. And same with Jesus. If there was blemishes, if they had found things in his character, if they had found things in his thought life, if they had found things that he had spoken that were sinful or that were to be regretted or that were perverted or any of those things or swearing, then his blood would not be able to cleanse us. It would only smear the junk that we have. But why this gives such tremendous hope is that when his blood, when you receive his blood, it actually washes you clean. Without regret, you can say, oh, wow, holiness has touched me. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 9. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, without blemish, so important to God, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know what's so sad? Is that so many of us as Christians have failed to enter into this reality. The reality I'm talking about right now, the fact that Jesus' blood is without blemish and when it touches us, it absolutely cleanses us to the core of our beings, should be something that makes us overflow with joy. We should literally be the happiest people on the earth. But isn't it true that many of us still get up every morning and subconscious, it's not even a conscious thing, but we are just so used to feeling unworthy and guilty and condemnation. We just get up every morning. And this is why I actually think one of the biggest reasons, not the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons why people, many people struggle to have a devotional life is not just because they lack self-discipline. Some people think, I just, don't lack the di- I just lack the discipline to get up early in the morning. Well, that, that might be part of it. I think part of the reason people lack the discipline is because when they have their devotions, they feel so unworthy to God. They can't receive his love. 
They don't hear anything from them. They just feel unworthy. Subconsciously, their faces always turned away from God in shame. And as a result, their devotions just feel dry and terrible. And you know what? It just, it's just very difficult to get up every morning to have an experience like that. And we don't realize that Jesus died on a cross, absolutely without blemish, that when his blood touches us, we become clean. Your brain keeps telling you that you're not worthy and God's upset at you and subconsciously you're turned away from him in shame and you don't have that joy and you don't realize his arms are open to you and you say, yeah, but I sinned yesterday. His arms are open to you saying, come to me, confess it and I'll forgive you again. I love it. And you go back to him and you repent, but he gladly takes you in because, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Not based on you've never screwed up. We've all screwed up. Many, many, many times, and we will yet many times in the future. But he never messed up. And when his blood touches you, it cleanses you, which means that you're clean. You don't need to be turned away subconsciously every morning when you get up. Turned away subconsciously from God, thinking he's mad at you. You can come to him and know that his smile is towards you again, not based on yourself, but based on the blood of Jesus that was shed, and it was without blemish. And it was without blemish. You know, I think sometimes, again, like I said, this is something, well, look at it, it even says there, to purify our conscience. The eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. To purify our conscience, it's supposed to purify your conscience. Jesus doesn't want you going through life. He didn't die so you'd go through life overburdened with condemnation all the time. You actually can have a conscience that feels clean even though you've messed up, even though you continue to mess up. And yes, we continue to confess. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We go back to him and confess. But recognizing that as we come to him in confession, he loves us. He is glad to forgive us. And he wants to purify our conscience. We can leave those burdens behind. But you know what? Many of us just have a brain pattern of condemnation. We have a brain pattern of feeling distant from God. And you have to overcome that. At a certain point, Jesus says, I did it. The truth is all right here. And Chris sometimes is preaching it right? Hopefully all the time. But. So it's all there. At a certain point, we have to take ownership of this thing and say, I'm going to get this truth in me now if it kills me. Why am I still living like this? I'm going to take steps. One of the things that I, I do is uh, when there's truths that I have to get into me, I'll sometimes do just, just you know, these practical little things like saying things out loud every morning when I get up in my devotions or writing them out. But you could take a statement like this. I'll just put a statement up there. And you could just start your devotions every day by, by making a statement of truth and just saying, I feel distant, I feel like unworthy, but actually it's different. And you write out, there's something that happens when you write things out or when you speak them aloud. And again, this is not a formula, it could be anything, but just a truth like this. God happily welcomes me into his presence again today, not because I am perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. And you write that out every day. Maybe you write it out 10 times or you pray it out loud 10 times and you do it before you go to bed and you pray, Jesus, help me to receive this. And every day you do that. But you're asking the Holy Spirit to get a truth inside of you. And because of his blood, we can come into his presence. Well, we looked at three things there and I said there was going to be one more at the end of this message. There's one more note. The melody is the cross, the resurrection. We've looked at some notes from the Passover lamb. There's one more note, one of the chords and one of the harmonies that really brings some of Luke 23 alive. And some of the crucifixion story alive. And again, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And I want to talk about another ritual in the Old Testament. This one is from Leviticus 16. And it's really important for the crucifixion story as well. And I've talked about some of this before, but there's one new thing I want to bring out of it. And it was called the Day of Atonement. Every 
and it really brings out some of this other stuff with the Passover lamb and how, what Jesus has done for us even more. But, and uh, every year on a day of atonement, that was a very solemn day when the high priest would make sacrifices that were supposed to pay for the sins of the Israelites for the past year. It was called the Day of Atonement. Very solemn day, usually fasting and prayer, time of confession. And they had this interesting ritual on the Day of Atonement. The, the core of the Day of Atonement was this particular ritual that involved two goats. Not one, but two. I'm, I'm going to read it to you now. Leviticus 16, 7 to 10. Then he, that's Aaron the high priest, shall take, again, and it's important, two goats. Not one, two. Shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay? Now, what, what is going to happen with these two goats? Why two and not one? Well, we're going to see and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, which probably just means something like scapegoat, okay? So don't worry about that name. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, okay? So I'm going to read you just a couple more verses after this, but first, just stop. So two, the core of the Day of Atonement was this. Two goats come forward. And before the Lord, and then they cast lots. It's sort of their version of, of rolling the dice. So they would kind of roll the dice, and one goat would be chosen. That is the goat that's going to die for the sins of the people. And then the other goat would be released into the wilderness. So two goats would come. Always had to be two, not one. Two goats would come forward. Uh, one would, you know, kind of lose the toss. That one would, be get, would get killed, sacrificed for the sins. The other one is released out into the wilderness. Now, what was, the, what was symbolic, and I've talked about this one before, but what was symbolic of the one going out into the wilderness? Well, it's very important, and uh, let's read it again here, starting in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. So the, the dead one is going to pay for the sins, but Aaron's going to lay his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay, so this is really important because, and again, I'm going to show you something new here in a moment, but first, we just have to meditate on this truth. Again, God in his sovereignty is giving 1,500 years in advance. He's, they don't even know why, but he's giving them a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us on the cross. His death is going to pay for the sins. The goat that dies, is, he's, there's got to be pain. There's got to be justice. Someone has to die for these sins. So that goat takes the punishment so that you don't have to take the punishment. So one of the things Jesus does for us on the cross is he pays our punishment. He pays for the sins so I don't have to die for my own sins. But he doesn't just pay for the sins. There's this second goat. And what does the second goat do? The second goat bears the sins out away into a remote area. Why is that important? Well, the first goat means that you, you don't have to, God doesn't have to punish the Israelites. But if that's all that happens, the Israelites still have their sins on them. They're walking around. They don't have to be punished for them. But their sins are still burdening them. And when God looks at them, he sees them as dirty. But so that's why God says, I've got to give you this picture. Jesus is going to do more than just pay the punishment. He's also going to bear your sins away. Remember I said before, his blood touches you. It actually cleanses you. Well, this goat gives us an even deeper picture. This goat would actually bear the sins of the people. So when God looked at the Israelites, not only did he not have to punish them, but he, see, he doesn't see their sins covering them. Their sins have been taken far away. They no longer have to carry the burden of those sins. The shame and the guilt and all of that, that's what the two goats mean. And of course... One layer of the song is that Jesus is both goats. 
He pays the punishment. He bears our sins away, actually cleansing us so we don't walk around bearing the shame and the guilt and the burden of our sins anymore. Wow, if we could just lock into that. If we could just lock into that, amen? amen. But there's another layer here that I want to look at. It's another layer I want to look at. Finish this message. Before the final decision to crucify Jesus, how many men were presented before Pilate and the religious leaders? Right? Two goats on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of the Crucifixion, how many men were presented before Pilate and religious leaders? Well, let's look. Matthew 27, verses 15 to 17. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Two men. Now, isn't that an interesting coincidence? Does Jesus, is God incredible? The layers, the layers at which this story works from the Old Testament into the New and to the smallest detail, Jesus fulfilling everything. The sovereignty of God here is astonishing. 1,500 years before, he knew exactly the names of the people. He knew Pilate. He knew the religious leaders. He knew Barabbas. He knew his own son. And 1,500 years before, he said, I'm going to set this up. It's going to be two goats. It's not going to be one. It's going to be two. And of course, we know on one level, Jesus is both goats. Barabbas doesn't carry our sins out of the wilderness. But on another level, we have two goats in the Day of Atonement. One is chosen to die and one is set free. And now on the day of the crucifixion, again, the sovereignty of God. It says the Romans had a custom. How did they just happen to have a custom on that day? They, they didn't love God. They weren't following God. It's not because of the book of Leviticus, I'll tell you that right now. They weren't following the book of Leviticus. Okay, this is the sovereignty of God. Somewhere along the way, how long did they have this custom to release a prisoner on that day? Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years? I don't know. But somewhere along the way you say, how can God direct the paths of people who don't even follow him? He is in control. Amen? Amen. And so at one point he said, you're going to start a new custom. And some Roman governor went, I'm going to start a new custom. <laughs> you're going to release a prisoner on such and such a day every year. I'm going to release a prisoner on such and such a day. Right? That's just what, that's the sovereignty of God. He bends the will of kings wherever he wants. If he wants something to happen in your marriage or in your life or in your business and you give yourself to him, do you have anything to worry about? So he said, you're going to have a custom. And it's all setting up from Leviticus to here. It's all setting up. And so finally here it comes and we have the final, the day, kind of, in a sense of atonement when the Passover lamb for all of humanity is going to pay for the sins of all of humanity. And you can't have just one. So you have to have two. And so they present two, and one is chosen, and one is set free. Now, we often look at this story all wrong. I, often we're trying to put ourselves in this story, and one of the common analogies, and it's not bad. I've done this too. Often we imagine ourselves as one of the Roman soldiers pounding the nails into Jesus' hands because we say it's our sins that nailed him to the tree. That's not a bad picture. That's not a bad analogy. Nothing, nothing wrong with, with that, right? It's kind of a picture, yes? It's our sins that nailed him to the tree. 
And then we read this part about Barabbas, and we just think, like, why on earth, like, what kind of wicked people would let Barabbas go? I mean, Jesus, not a blemish. They examine and examine and examine. He's never said anything wrong. And then they let free this murderer. Like, it's just crazy. But have you ever actually stopped to think, you know who we are in this story? If anybody in this story, we are Barabbas. Is that not true? We are Barabbas in this story. Two show up before the council. The innocent one is taken and the guilty one goes off scot-free. That's us. We stand before God the Father. And what do we have going for us? He plays the videotape of our words and we go, oh my goodness. Don't, you don't even need to get to the videotape of my actions. I deserve hell. Right? But if you accept Jesus as your Savior, what happens? Barabbas goes free, scot-free. He did nothing to deserve it. He pays nothing. He goes free, and the innocent one dies. You and me are Barabbas. We are the ones who are set free, and Jesus is the one who dies. Now, that is the best news in all of the universe. And if it actually gets into your heart, it'll change everything about your life because you'll be so grateful you won't have time to be upset about all those little problems you have anymore. If God loves you that much, you feel so distant from God. If he loves you that much that you pay nothing and his son pays everything, what else won't he do for you in his love? You feel distant from him? He's saying, come to me. Read your Bible. I love you. I've set you free. I've cleansed you. I've carried your sins off into the wilderness. They're far from you. Come to me. Because I accept you, not because of what you've done, but because of what my son has done. So I want to finish response time here. Different, many different kinds of people here today. There's just two I want to hit on. One is, we might have some people, most of the people here today probably walked with Jesus for some time. But there might be some people here this morning, I don't doubt it, in every service, that maybe you've never made a commitment. Maybe you're a younger person, you've just never, never done it yet. And you've never said, I, I choose Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus only takes your place if you ask him to. That's all you have to do. You don't have to earn it, you don't have to pay but he only takes your place if you ask him to. And someday, each one of us is going to stand before the Father on, on the great white throne judgment. And one has to pay for the sins. It's either going to be you paying for your sins or it's going to be Jesus. But that day is coming. If you choose Jesus, you get to be Barabbas in a sense. Now, I don't know if Barabbas ever turned into a good guy after this. I hope he did. But in a sense, you get to be Barabbas, you get off scot-free and Jesus pays for your sins it's amazing so that's one and I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a, uh, a minute and uh, you can pray with me and you can receive it. it's that easy but I want to talk to one other group of people first you may be here today and you've walked with Jesus for a long time and you still hold unforgiveness in your heart I was all week as I was praying about this message just the word forgiveness 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 kept coming up so I said, fine. I think I need to say something about forgiveness right at the end of this message. How can you be Barabbas? How can you be set free? Jesus pays everything, all the junk you've ever done or said. And he never did anything. He pays it. You go scot-free. To turn around after that and to hold a grudge against someone else shows 
you have never truly comprehended what Jesus did for you. To turn around and hold unforgiveness against someone, I don't know who it could be against. Could be someone from your past, some a family member. Could be uh, you know business deal. Could be something your spouse said to you this morning. They just looked at you weird in your mom. To hold, I think this is one of the biggest deals in the Christian life is forgiveness. Do you know that when you open up your heart to forgive others, you say, but I don't, you know, part of the reason we haven't emotionally received Jesus' forgiveness is because we refuse to open the door of our heart to give it out to others. So the water gets stagnant in there. It's meant to flow. His forgiveness is meant to flow through you and onto others. But because you're holding it in, the water can't keep flowing. And it's not that Jesus hasn't forgiven you. It's that you can't experience it for yourself because you refuse to do it to others. Do you know I've had numerous experiences in my life, whether it be from little things to bigger things. But when I take a step forward and I say, I will not hold a grudge against this person. I will not look at them weird and hold a grudge against them and be mad at them. I'm going to step, and I don't feel like it, but I'm just going to, and I take a step forward and I choose to forgive them for something they did that to me that was unjust or that bothered me. When I open the door and I don't hold it against them anymore, do you know immediately a door opens on the other side of me and it's like I can feel God's forgiveness more for me? It's like you almost appreciate, thanks for that opportunity, I got to forgive that person and they, they didn't even say sorry, which just makes me understand you even more. Because how often do I not say sorry and he forgives me? Wow, it's amazing. But if you don't forgive, you show that you have not received, you have not entered in to the fact that his blood has touched you and purified you and you are off scot-free. So I'm going to ask you all to just bow your heads with me and close your eyes and we're just going to listen for just a moment. And I'm going to ask the Lord, he loves you and he is not mad at you. But if you are holding a grudge, could be small, medium or big, it doesn't matter how big. Could be from this morning, could be your spouse, could be an ex, could be someone you've done business with or a family member, could be bigger, could be smaller. I want you to just let him bring that name to your, to your mind, and then I just want you to say this to him. I will. It's a choice of the will. It's not, just, it's not emotional to start. I will let go of this. Please help me let go of this. I will forgive. I want to forgive. Please help me to forgive. Amen. So we'll just be, listen for just a moment. Lord Jesus, would you bring to mind, and you have forgiven us so much, would you bring to mind anyone we are holding a grudge against this morning? Lord Jesus, help us to forgive. We will forgive. We want to forgive. Help us to forgive. We pray a blessing right now over all anybody you brought to our minds right now who has hurt us, and they may not even be sorry for hurting us. They may deny that they have hurt us. They may have unjustly accused us of something. Lord, we forgive them anyway because of what you've done for us. It is actually our joy to let go of that for your sake, what you have let go of in us. We will forgive. We want to forgive. Help us to forgive. And now if there's anyone here and you just want to receive Jesus here this morning, I'm just going to pray a prayer. You can pray along. And afterwards, you tell someone. Go to the prayer room and tell someone this is all it takes to be saved. 
Lord Jesus, I want you to wash away my sins. I'm tired of carrying them around. Please forgive me and welcome me into your family. I want to live with you forever. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.